On this episode of the program, we answer some of your burning questions about the primary season so far, and we bring on the great Bill Scher to talk about congressional chaos and all things Joe Biden. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Bow Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, V, and Craig. Everybody to the politics, politics, politics program for February 9th, 2024. Your old pal Justin Robert Young joining you here in Austin, Texas. And you want to know what? It's been a while since we've done a mailbag. Because if it's an expectation of a mailbag, if we're gonna run emails all the time, then I think it tends to drag with folks, but if I only do a mailbag when I get a bunch of emails that I want to answer, then it's a fun time for you and for me. And also, I think we're at an interesting point in this phase where there is some stuff that I want to talk about that might not be worth a full whole segment. So here we go. John writes, on the topic of the lack of ads in Nevada. There are so few ads here in South Carolina that I didn't even realize the Democratic Party was uh, the Democratic primary was happening on Saturday. That was apparently so important for Biden to move up in the calendar. At least we have open primary so I can vote in the other one. Where is all the campaign money going? So. You will not see a lot of ads for Democrats in South Carolina because South Carolina really isn't going to be in play for the general North Carolina will, but the Democrats are going to spend a lot of money on digital ads. Uh, One of their biggest packs just announced that, that uh, they're going to do about 50, 50 digital ads versus television ads. First time that that's been done with an expenditure uh, uh, that big. So if you have not seen stuff in the primaries, that makes sense. Uh, Dave Weigel of Semaphore just did a big FEC breakdown and and pointed out that you want to know what for this Republican primary, the big donors are still there, but small dollar donations are down on the Republican side. There has not been as much money raised in that race as there was in 2020. And you can chalk that up to a few different things. I'm going to list two of them off the top of my head. Number one, the economy's different. Some would say bad. Others would say we are not being told the right things by the right people. And the other is on the Republican side, small dollar donations have been pretty humped out. If you notice, if if you have been unlucky enough to get caught up in the vortex of solicitations from Republican causes, you'll notice something. It's all about Donald Trump. Every single Text message, every single email is about Donald Trump. And the reason why is because that gets people to hit the button and donate. What you don't realize 
until after you've gotten to the final landing screen is that 90% of the money that you're sending is to some congressional race that you would otherwise never give money to. But they put Donald Trump's name on it and Donald Trump gets a penny out of the $100 that you give them. I wonder if there's an attrition effect there. Not necessarily because people are using a split method, because I think that's going to continue to happen forever, but that there has been one main event in Republican fundraising now for 12 years. No, it'll be eight years. So it'll be 12 years if Donald Trump wins for eight years, nearly a decade. The way that Republicans raise money is by saying Donald Trump's in trouble. Maybe the message is, you know, slimmed down a little bit. Davin writes, I feel like PX3 and hood politics would be a chocolate and peanut butter situation. He's an L.A. rapper turned teacher turned podcaster. He meets a J school podcaster comedian. Hey, babe, it has legs. Uh, let me just say this, especially as we move into uh, this cycle. Feel free to email your favorite podcaster that isn't me. And say, hey, I think you guys should do a show together and CC me on it. Similarly, if there's somebody else that you think I should have on this show, go ahead and CC us together and say, hey, I think you should be on PX3. I have found that's probably the best way that these things tend to happen. If a, a mutual listener says, I think you guys would would do a great show together. It, it tends to work better than if I just cold email and say, hey, a listener of yours said that we should do a thing together. Because by and large, look, the, the Internet is vast and wide and the world of political podcasts is crowded. So by and large, I have not heard of the person that you love. And probably by and large, they're bigger than me. So just skip a lot of awkwardness and say, hey. I love both of you guys. I think you would do great on each other's shows. Because this is the time where we should cross-pollinate. And I'll, I took a little bit of listening to, to Hood Politics. Very good. I'll reach out. Michael writes, I saw this article and I immediately thought about how you're saying that all politics is local. I was curious for your thoughts. The article that he sent was based on quotes by a Lincoln Project guy who says that all politics are national. He's writing a book on this. He specifically cites the fact that Kim Reynolds, Chris Sununu, and Nikki Haley have been unable to best Trump in states that they are either currently governor or were a popular governor in. Now, you can look at that. You can look at Iowa and say that Kim Reynolds went for Ron DeSantis and it didn't make much of a difference. Bob Vanderplatz and the evangelical machine in Iowa went for Ron DeSantis, didn't make much of a difference. Chris Sununu came hard for Nikki Haley, was out there pounding the pavement, working every angle he possibly could in New Hampshire. Didn't do much for Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley's currently barnstorming through her home state, her sweet state of South Carolina. And by the most recent Washington Post poll, she's losing by damn near 30. Now, you could look at that and say all politics is national. I'm not ready to go there yet. I do think that there are meaningful changes in terms of regions. I think that the reason why Donald Trump won like he did in Iowa and then won by less in New Hampshire is an example of that. 
But at a certain point, especially from a Lincoln Project guy who's going to be looking for every possible reason to explain why Donald Trump steamrolling this primary isn't all that impressive. I'm here to say that it's impressive, or at least it's impressive enough for us to follow our friend Michael Cohen's strategy that we got two incumbents. Joe Biden is the current president of the United States. He's an incumbent. Donald Trump is somebody that I think even the Biden 2020 campaign would say if it were not for COVID, he probably would have won. You know, if you don't get an entirely controversial lockdown, the economic downswing, the loss of jobs, the existential dread, the accompanying riots, the questions of vaccines, the questions of therapeutics, the questions of whether or not everything in every single step of everything that I just mentioned was handled correctly. And it's just kind of a regular campaign with a good economy. Trump probably would have won. So. As much as we love having these conversations and I love having these conversations, these are the conversations that I make my living on. I don't know if it's more complicated than we have two incumbents. And all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put anybody's insurgent hopes back together again. You know, the only way that you were going to go against Trump would be to go very hard on him very early. You know, in hindsight, Ron DeSantis had to launch for president as he got sworn in as his second term of governor. And he didn't. But even then, I think we probably would have been looking back and saying, holy crap, Ron DeSantis really made himself persona non grata with MAGA. And for what? Finally, Patrick says, why would Nikki Haley drop out at all? Wouldn't it be better for her to get second place delegates in the non winner take all primaries in case something happens to Trump? I get that she may be pounded and run out of money, but at la- but uh, as the last person standing, wouldn't she benefit from staying in if Trump gets convicted, chokes on a French fry, or otherwise drops out? Because I do think that we're not, this primary is probably not going to survive this month and will almost certainly not survive past the second week of March. We, we're probably going to have to come up with some rules. When I was streaming today on, uh, my Twitch and YouTube and everything, my uh, Twitter. I, I think I'm going to have to put in a rule that I can only talk so often about Trump's vice president, number one, and number two, fan fiction scenarios involving the death of one of the two major candidates. I, I can only, I can only do so much of the. Well, if Trump dies, we have to think about when Trump dies and if it's before the convention, if it's after the convention, there's just there's only so macabre I want to get. And as much as, you know, hey, they're old, that's that's the argument. I I don't want to get that macabre. If that happens, we will get to it. If not, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it. So why would Haley drop out at all? 
Well, if she wants to run in 28, if she wants to remain viable to the Donald Trump coalition, then she should drop out. Now, why would she want to remain viable for the Trump coalition? Because that's going to be a formidable part of her party's electorate probably until she's out of the range in which she would be running for office. So you want to at least be palatable to the Trump coalition, which is different than the Republican coalition that existed for George W. Bush. It involves different kinds of issues. You are now looking to win the presidency with a map that includes Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. Not necessarily the the Florida, Georgia element that, that you had before. So you're looking at a lot more white working class voters, a lot more uh, voters without a college degree. You're looking at a higher minority, uh, a, a minority share, most likely. So you don't want to totally embarrass yourself in front of them. You don't want to be persona non grata with them if you ever want to run again. Now, the other argument is that she doesn't want to run again. She just kind of wants to write books, be on Boeing's board, do whatever rich people do. Do the Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan is just, you know, at a certain point, you know, enough rich people that think you're really rad, that they just want to put you on boards. They really want you to just be around, be at cocktail parties, speak at a bunch of stuff. Basically everything that Mitt Romney's going to do after he leaves public office, except, you know, for Romney, it'll also be remembering his 67 grandchildren's birthdays. But other than that, it will be that kind of line of work. And if Nikki Haley's made enough money that that's what she wants to do, then who cares? Stay in this as long as the checks are clearing. She's going to get to Super Tuesday, get her get her whole staff paid through Super Tuesday, and then she can ride off into the sunset. But the reason why you drop out, if you do drop out, and we're going to talk about one of the reasons why in this uh, ad break, is because you want to make sure that you are preserving your relationship with the coalition that Donald Trump brought to the table. If you want to email us, it is the young American at gmail.com. Send in your emails. When we get enough of them, we will run another one of these segments. This is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 level gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week. And news is coming in fast. Coming in fast, my friends. Including a lot more conversation on our Thursday episode about this. Nikki Haley's presidential campaign faced a significant setback in the Nevada primary where she was the only listed candidate but lost to none of the above, or sorry, none of these candidates by a large margin. Despite being unopposed, Haley garnered just 31% of the vote, falling far behind the 63% for none of these candidates. 
This result, though symbolic, with no delegates at stake, highlights the challenge that Haley faces in her campaign against Donald Trump. Trump did not actively campaign for this primary, although he was there within a week of voting or two weeks of voting is expected to secure all of Nevada's 26 delegates in the upcoming caucus. Haley spokesperson Olivia Perez Cubas downplayed the loss, emphasizing their focus on the future primaries, particularly in South Carolina, Haley's sweet home state. Despite the Nevada result, Haley's campaign remains active, recently raising substantial funds in California. Trump, meanwhile, is focusing on eliminating Haley's challenge in SC aiming for a general election face-off against Joe Biden. An unnamed person in this article written by Reuters with the ability to speak freely said this was an embarrassing situation. And it is an embarrassing situation. It's an embarrassing situation that I warned against on this podcast on Monday. I warned you. I warned Nikki Haley. I said, look, You can't. I mean, if she campaigns there, you have an opportunity to win. And you can say, look, the Nevada primary is going to be the reality of this state going forward. You can even make some noise about how we're going to contest the delegates because we don't think that it was fair what the state did. You know, whatever. Uh, 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 say what you need to say but try to take a win she did the only thing that you couldn't do take your first win and turn it into a loss despite the fact that you technically won this campaign is snake bit and there's been a lot of conversation since then of hey if you thought that this was a no win situation you weren't going to win against Trump in the caucus and you were going to probably place behind none of none of these candidates in the in the primary, then why did you stay on the ballot? Take your name off the ballot. Don't have a loss on your record like this. Ugh. I just don't get the X's nose. This Haley campaign feels afraid of its own shadow. Feels very risk averse. It feels uh, I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it. I'll say it. Hillary-esque. It's, it feels Hillary-esque. It feels this is the kind of move that feels we can't campaign in Michigan because then they'll know that we're afraid about Michigan. So we're going to 4D chess our way into a massive L. In a significant development, Senate Republicans blocked the comprehensive bill that combined aid for Ukraine-Israel-Taiwan and border security enhancements. The bill, a product of a month-long, months-long bipartisan negotiations, failed to clear the Senate with 49 to 50 vote, missing the required 60-vote threshold. The outcome marks the end of the prolonged effort to bolster border protections, a key aspect of the negotiations. The bill's failure stemmed partly from Republican opposition, influenced by Changes in stance toward border policy. Initially, Republicans sought to link border policy reforms to Ukraine aid. However, they quickly dismissed the proposed border deal as insufficient. House Republican leaders declared the bill dead on arrival, swaying more GOP centers against it. Four Republicans, including lead negotiator James Langford, voted in favor 
while the measure lost support from five Democrats, reflecting concerns over the immigration provisions and unconditional aid to Israel on that side. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer criticized the Republican shift in position, attributing it to pressure from Trump. In a strategic mood, Schumer changed his vote to no, allowing for the possibility of reintroducing the bill later. Following this setback, Senate Democratic leadership plans to propose a revised bill focused slowly on money to Ukraine, which, by the way, is what this was about the entire time. This has always been about money to Ukraine. It is, what can we do to get money for Ukraine? And apparently not this. The Senate, of course, faces a time crunch. It's scheduled to recess for two weeks, starting yesterday, as you listen to this. So they're out of town. And this one was surprising to me. The Saudi Foreign Ministry made a significant statement this week, clarifying... That for Saudi Arabia to normalize diplomatic relations with Israel, Israel must first recognize an independent Palestinian state based on pre-1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital. The announcement has implications for the hopes of a trilateral deal with the United States, Saudi Arabia and Israel, potentially dampening U.S. President Joe Biden's aspirations for such an agreement within the year. The foreign ministry's declaration came after the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, visited Saudi Arabia, where he met Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The visit is part of Blinken's broader Middle East tour aimed at advancing the Saudi-Israeli normalization deal and addressing the situation in Gaza. Blinken had expressed optimism about his potential for normalization, but Saudi Arabia's stance emphasizes the need for a resolution to the Gaza conflict and a clear path back toward establishing a Palestinian State. Look, there was also rumblings this week that Saudi Arabia was normalizing its relationship with Iran and that this deal was partially brokered by China. E, what is going on with the State Department? What in the world is happening? That is a slap in the face. A slap in the face. And by the way, the Biden administration has had a very curious way of dealing with Saudi Arabia. Very curious. Joe Biden talked about uh, how he was going to, to make Saudi Arabia the pariah that it was during the campaign trail. Well, guess what? We needed Saudi Arabia here. If we wanted to tilt the Arab world toward Israel's side, if we wanted to bring more of the Arab world into the Western sphere of influence, then normalizing those relations is a big deal. And now that ain't happening because I don't think there's going to be a Palestinian state with pre-1967 borders. Especially not now. You can't recognize a Palestinian state when there's a war going on. And let's remember... The State Department's reaction to October 7th was that Hamas was trying to stop a normalization with Saudi Arabia. Well, guess what? They did. So by the United States' own narrative, Hamas got what it wanted. By what we have said, not what anyone else has said, what our State Department has said, Hamas got what they wanted. They successfully killed a normalization 
between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Not great, Al. Not great. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go if you want to support this show. Head on over there right now. Sign up at the $3 level. You get two bonus episodes each and every week. Now, on to Bill Share. Joining us, as he often does, is the friendly voice and face of Washington Monthly's Bill Share. Welcome back to the show, Bill. Oh, very kind intro. Thank you so much. Well, it's always good to see you. And and it feels like we're we're at the beginning of a a breather point to to the primary system. Let's let's start there on on the Republican side. Nikki Haley losing to none of these candidates in Nevada. Something that I said was going to happen on Monday's <laughs> on Monday's show. I said this is a problem. There was nobody out there. I was in Vegas. No commercials. No campaign yeah. events, absolutely nothing. Nikki Haley's team is bragging about how they weren't spending any money and they got what they paid for a loss to none of these candidates. But, but with, with just let, let's just start there. Uh, 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 where are we right now on the Republican side? I mean, it's over. I, I, yeah. I, I don't understand why she is insisting on humiliating herself. There, there are sometimes a candidate stays to the bitter end because they have a cause. Yeah. They're trying to show they represent a faction of the party. They want to influence the platform. They want to make an argument that you need me to unify the party, put me on the ticket, put me in your cabinet, something like that. I, I just don't see what the Haley endgame is here because she's not making a great case that you need her to round out your party. Um she obviously Trump's not your average presidential candidate who's not really. I mean, some people, some some presidential candidates say, "I don't like this person, but I feel I need to have them on my team for unification purposes." That's not how Trump really operates. She's about to go into her home state where she's sure to lose by a lot, which is probably one of the biggest humiliating things a politician can can go through. So why subject yourself to it? Like she she actually had a point at the end of the year where you're like, you know what? You did better than I thought you were going to do. Like you, you, you ran a respectful race. You, you took some stances. You know, good on you. Uh, maybe you, maybe you, you can stick around four years. Hence, um, you know, New Hampshire was a defeat, but not like not like the most humiliating defeat of all time. But now, as it goes on and on, it gets sadder and sadder. Well, that's that's my thing. So when I was in New Hampshire watching her speak, and she wasn't calling for victory. She wasn't saying on Tuesday, we're going to shock the world. McCain, Trump, Haley, where are the stories of New Hampshire? You guys are always right. Eventually, uh, uh, you, you, you pick the nominee. This is it. This is our time. Go out there. When she wasn't doing that and she's playing the expectations game, it's like this, this isn't the preseason. This is the playoffs. <laughs> like you you have to. It's, it's win or go home for stuff like this. And now – she's hustling backwards to the point where you would think she's a liability in any kind of future endeavor. She's making unforced errors that you, you don't want around a winning campaign, which she has not seemed to be able to put together. She, she just has a completely uh, wrong theory of the case. Yeah. You know, she had, she, she, she had a game plan from the beginning 
which was, you know, uh, attack Biden on age with a Soto Voce attacking Trump on the same grounds as well. Yeah. Um, outlast everybody else, make it a two person race and then consolidate that anti-Trump vote. And that only works if the majority of the Republican Party is an anti-Trump vote, which we see that it is not. It is not. No. <laughs> so theory of the case disproven. There's no plan B here. Time to go home. Now, like if you're Chris Christie, for example, like, like Chris, if Chris Christie wanted to barrel through and take his shots to the bitter end, I would kind of get it because what's Chris Christie's uh, soft landing spot? Uh, a TV contract gig. The same, which he, the same, the same TV podcast. contract he had that he left. Right. He, goes, he already has ABC. it. Yeah. He already has it. So he didn't have to like stick it out for three months to get it. He already no. has it. Yeah. But like, but he's sort of like a lively character. So he sure. can still generate news and whatnot. So I, I would kind of get that. Haley is just so aggressively mediocre. <laughs> She's so meh. <laughs> Uh, which is why she can you can get the occasional poll, which she might beat Biden by better than Trump. Because it's like, okay, like you are just so boring, okay. <laughs> but that's not enough to justify you need me on the ticket, you need me in your cabin, you need me in your TV show. Like she's not a ratings driver, she's not a, she's not an energy driver. She's just yeah. <laughs> no, so, nor, uh, nor do I, I really think that she's consolidating any kind of vote that wasn't already there by way of anti-Trump vote. Right. Like, like there's well, not, all she has. She's, yeah, she, she's she not is. she's not turning anybody. I don't think that she's finding any Democrats to say, well, I would vote for Republican if it were Nikki Haley. I mean, there, there might be a little bit of that. But at this point, you know, when she's doing mean tweets on Jimmy Kimmel, <laughs> I, I, like you're you're. You're running like a kinder, gentler, more far, more uh, left leaning Chris Christie, which Chris Christie <laughs> failed like his theory of the case failed before yours did. You, you were the, the the just right porridge of Chris Christie being too hot and Ron DeSantis being too cold on on anti-Trump sentiment. You were just right. But you you don't really have anything else. And and the, I, I do the, think it's getting embarrassing. The difficulty of the task, and it was always going to be, I mean, I, I I thought, you know, you talked to me in January 2023, I'd say, this is possible. There's a yeah. path here. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it required stitching together not just anti-Trump, but existing soft Trump. Not yes. everyone in the Republican Party is a diehard cultist. No. That's clearly a good chunk of it, but it's not everybody. No. Because uh, you saw the Trump numbers sag after the midterm, there was a yes faction of like, you know, hey, you know, I like Trump, but like he's not everything. And if someone else can get the job done, you know, fine with me. And so you had to find a way to get those folks who weren't didn't have the antipathy towards Trump with the folks to do and find some unifying thread. Uh, and, you know, Christie was too far one way. He, he needed reinforcements. Like maybe there was a way if other Republicans who are more median voter were vocally uh, attacking Trump and saying, look, Trump is toxic for us. We need to get rid of him. So Tr Chrissy couldn't be a one-man band. He needed help. He never, never got it. Uh, Haley needed a unifying theory, which for, for her was age. Yeah. As it is for Dean Phillips on the Democratic side, and this is one of my drum beats, <laughs> ageism is, is unproven as, as, as a, a rallying yeah. cry, not yeah. just this year, but anytime it's been tried. Yeah. Uh, so... Somebody who 
generally likes a candidate is it's hard to get that person to say, you know, I agree with this person like 95% of the time. I'm going to abandon them over age. It just doesn't happen very often. I mean, it certainly hasn't happened if what I can see at the presidential level. Yeah. So she tried that card. It didn't work. Game over, kid. Try something. Go, go find another job. Yeah. And that's the question is I, I wonder whether or not she stays in politics or just you know, finds another board gig that does the Paul Ryan route where she can uh, bounce around in the that's, private sector. That, that, that's a more likely option because you know, she doesn't even have great cred in her home state. Her home state is far Trumpier than she is. Well, that's the thing. Like not now, not if she takes a 25 point loss, like she might <laughs> right, at the end of the month, right. but we'll have plenty of time for that as we get closer <laughs> to it. Let's swing on over to the Biden side. I, I, I may, I may do this as a general barometer for folks, uh, especially if the polling is, as uh, gruesome as it was for the NBC poll over the week. But Bill Share, as somebody who has watched Democratic circles for many, many years, mm. how wet is the bed by percentage? <laughs> well, I think they're competing narratives going on in the Democratic Party. There, there's the Dean Phillips narrative, which I think is probably shared by some, which is, look, he's losing Trump in the, in the polls. He's losing nationally in most polls. He's losing in most swing states. Uh, even though the economy is good, can't you see this guy is just dead man walking? Uh, save yourself before it's too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there are still people you know in the in that mode. But at the same time, here's Biden winning these states. I mean, so he won New Hampshire without even being on the ballot. He won Nevada uh, with 90 percent of the vote, and some of that anti-Biden vote was none of the above. It wasn't even Marianne Williamson or, oh, or, or yeah. her name on the I, I think I think I think Dean Phillips's Dean Phillips's chances are are already right. you know here and gone. But, yeah. but is, is it a barometer of party strength? That he's doing as well as he is, and uh, and, and of course, he, and, and he robbed in South Carolina as well with ninety five percent, I believe it was. Uh, so there, whatever discontent there is in the Democratic Party with Joe Biden, it's not materializing when it's time to vote. No, uh, but that's a low bar. We don't normally sure, we don't but, normally well, hold I, uh, uh, we, we don't normally hold non what we would think of as non contested primaries from an incumbent uh, uh, to thresholds on win total. I, I'm just saying that as far as degree of bedwetting quotient okay. right now. Okay, gotcha. The people that would who, be the wettest bed. The wettest right, bed is right. is Dean Phillips notching <laughs> double digits or right. something like that. You're not seeing the party in open war with itself. Gotcha. In these primaries. Uh, so the t- it's going to be pretty easy to consolidate and, you know, suit up for the general election, which essentially is already happening. Yes. Uh, and uh, the challenge now for Biden is to say this economy that you clearly like because your co- consumer confidence is up and you're spending money and you have more disposable income and you're going on vacation. Guess what? I had something to do with it. <laughs> that That's the challenge between now and, and November. Yeah. And, and I guess the, 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 the NBC poll that I referred to. You know, it has Trump up double digits on the economy, up double digits on the border, up double digits on competency and, uh, uh, you know, uh, ability to run things, which is something that Biden dominated him on in 2020. And really the big flashing light for me was Biden with only a two a two percent lead on abortion. Now, that is an outlier compared to to other polling. But I. I don't know. I'm kind of of two minds. My my gut feeling on stuff like this is, look, it's a long way out. A lot can change. And 
you know, I don't think there's a lot of surprises with these two guys. And and, and I, I do wonder if there are uh, consistent issues with Biden has trailed on the economy. And, and we both agree that this is going to you know be a an election that will be defined by Biden's ability to make himself a credible steward of what is going on positively with the economy. But if people aren't giving him credit now, what's going to change over the summer? Oh, what what I what I think will change is a continued good economy. I mean, I and I I apologize for being a, a broken record about this, but there is historically a lag between pre- presidents getting credit for a good, for the good economy happening and the presidents getting credit for it. Uh, even when they are better communicators and younger and more vibrant, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, they had lags too. Yeah, I agree. Biden has a bigger challenge with it because people are sort of baked in, like this guy is 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 not all there. He he just he sounds old. He sounds tired. It makes me anxious. I don't know what's going to happen next. Is he falling apart in front of my eyes? I just don't know. And it's also kind of like with, with the border. Just uh, just ask Francois. Right, right. I mean, look, like Biden can't keep his four leaders straight and Donald Trump can't keep Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi straight. You know, so there's a certain <laughs> at, least, at, least both of them, at least at least both of them are alive. I, I right, did actually right. have to do because the, the last time that I remember the oldest gaffe ever that I can remember is Bob Dole calling the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers in right. 1996. <laughs> and so I had to look it up. I think. Bob Dole at the time that he made that, that was like a 38 year old reference that he got wrong. Right. And, and uh, uh, Biden was 29, a 29 year old reference that he got wrong. Republicans are still making fun of Barack Obama because he's t- he said 57 states instead of 50 states in the primary season. And he did that because there are 57 contests in the presidential primary, like the Virgin Islands and Guam sure, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. With, with all the protectorates um, and right. territories. Like people... People misspeak. People say dumb things sometimes, particularly when you're in the spotlight and you're just constantly talking all the time. And Biden has always done it more than most. That's uh, true. So, that's true. Uh, so that's why like, I don't jump to like he has dementia because like this is the kind of misspeaking that like, we all do at some point in our lives. And you and if you were on TV as much as Joe Biden does, you would be caught doing it a lot more. Yes. Uh, so uh, the question really is, in my mind, uh, after months and months and months of a good economy, not just a few months of a good economy, because there's still, I think, some inflation overhang that people are still you know, irritated with. Uh, after it's been going on for a good long while, and maybe it doesn't. If the economy goes south, we, we, we will arise. Uh, but if we're yeah. on the track that we're on right now. And, 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 you, um, and, you, and you say good economy, because I do think that a lot of the other factors, employment, stuff like that, that's that's up. There are some worrying signs with like credit card debt. But like in, in general, things are are the underpin the underpinnings that we normally talk about for good economic indicators are there the problem is inflation and the only thing that really mitigates that is wage growth. So you are expecting- Which, which we have right now. Wages have been beating inflation for months now. Uh, well, uh, so- yeah. I mean, be- beating the rate of inflation for months. But we still have everything that happened over the past two years. Well, correct. That's what I've said. There's, there's, there's inflation hangover still. Yes, but we're on, but we're on the right track where wages are beating inflation, and, and and disposable income is up over real disposable income, which accounts for inflation, is up as well. Like those are the real key things. Yeah, and like inflation is something that it affects everybody. You feel it every day. Rich, middle class, poor. You go to the grocery store, you see it. It's in your face. Yeah. So the. Remain the guy I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who said, you know, well, you know, it's still tough to buy a home. Uh, 
one, I'm like, I don't think it's that tough to buy a home. It's tougher than maybe there was, you know, than four years ago. Uh, but rates are not like totally through the roof. Compa- People yeah. do still buy homes. Yeah, comparatively uh, to mm-hmm. the very, very low interest rates that we had for, right. for one Correct. might argue Which, longer than we should have. Uh, Correct. Uh, it, <laughs> is, it, is still, it is still hard, but not historically. Right. But- not everybody is trying to buy a home every single day of their lives. There's a certain group of people trying to buy a home. It's a, it's a very small One faction day. of America. One day, Bill, I'm going to make this podcast thing pay off so I can be worried about buying a house every day. Um, believe me, home ownership is, is not all it's cracked up to be. Um, so, like, inflation hits everybody, you know, the home home. Whole mortgage interest rates do not affect everybody every single day of, of, of their lives. So... Uh, if that's the only thing that is bugging people, that's not enough to upend the presidency. I mean, for all the history that we have, an incumbent president who is over presiding over solid GDP growth, low unemployment, real wages increasing, real disposable income increasing, those people win. Like you can't find Usually, an example yeah, yeah. where that incumbent loses. Now maybe maybe Biden's the first one. Maybe this is age is the X factor. Borders an X factor. You know, I I, I can't say well hundred percent certainty, but it would be incredibly unusual for the average voter to say, like, you know what, things are going on pretty well in my life over the past year. Therefore, I'm going to change horses. Like, just that's not what happens. Typically. I mean, the, the only thing that I would add as a caveat to that is that the guy he's running against also had a really strong economy before COVID hit, and and so there is an argument to say, like, okay, uh, uh, even if the economy is doing good, I don't trust Joe Biden with it. I trust Donald Trump more with it. Well, that's and, and Trump's going to try to prosecute that. Now, yeah, I would think if I think if you go into the weeds, the argument doesn't hold up. You know, his economy wasn't. Amazing! It was an extension of the economy he got from Barack Obama. You know, his his job growth year to year was it's like a tick worse than Obama's at the end, but roughly the same. Uh, and uh, then the pandemic hit, which was a nuclear bomb on the economy. And I think he he deserves responsibility in part for that. He mishandled it on the front end and made it much worse than it had to be. Uh, so Biden has that to give it in, in response. And that was the big reason why Biden was winning in those chaos uh, or competency uh, uh, polling things all throughout the 2020 election was because of uh, Donald Trump's handling on COVID. How do you make those numbers going against Biden now? Well, keep in mind, Biden was beating Trump in trial heat polling before the pandemic. Yes. Trump was already underperformed. If, if someone was going to lose with good economic numbers, it was going to be Donald Trump because he was never 50 percent job approval. He barely won in the first place. He did yeah. everything possible to alienate the average swing voter uh, and wasn't and, and wasn't wasn't getting credit himself for, for the for the good economy. Uh, so. But then it got compounded with how he handled the pandemic. Uh, so Biden's challenge, uh, because he doesn't exude competence through his uh, age persona, 
Uh, and because there are other things that have happened, you know, starting with Afghanistan, which Afghanistan, I don't think is Afghanistan mind. was the was the time the where everything went trigger. Everything went uh, upside down for his approval rating. Correct. I don't think people talk about Afghanistan. I don't think Afghanistan is top of mind right now. But it began a concern that maybe this guy isn't as competent as I thought he was. Yeah. Uh, then you have this extended period of inflation, which adds to that. Uh, and now you have uh, the border influx. Uh, so things that Biden have done did do competently, which is get a lot of bipartisan legislation passed, which people didn't think he could do. Infrastructure, semiconductors, gun safety, codifying same-sex marriage rights, um, debt limit deal, keeping the government open so far, at least. Uh, lots of things that he has done competently that he can point to. Uh, that is being undercut at the moment because you have border, border, border in the news every day. Uh, but maybe because Republicans have sabotaged the deal that they helped negotiate, now you're going to see Biden try to turn those tables and say, you know what, I'm prepared to do what has to be done to contain the border. And these guys won't let me because of just sheer, crass, low rank politics. So let's swing on over to Congress, because it has certainly been more chaotic. Uh, uh, you know, I've tried to listen to the 360 degree of opinions on everything that has gone down, not only with this iteration of I mean, essentially it, the, there, this is a foreign policy uh, or a, a foreign aid bill that the, the Biden administration has been trying to get through for six months now uh, mm -hmm. with Ukraine money and We've gone through the the hokey pokey of, OK, well, what do we need as Ukraine uh, funding got less popular? What do we need to staple to this to make it palatable to everybody that needs to do it? Each time they staple something to it, people find more reason to be mad about the thing that got stapled to it from Israel to border stuff. And now a full border package that was stapled onto it that was uh, uh, forced to be negotiated by elements of the Senate and then rejected by almost to a man, the exact same people from the Senate. I, I think the Republican Party is a broken party and they're a broken party because of immigration. Fear of, fear of immigrants has just completely overtaken the party and everything else is secondary to them. And this was on the rise before Donald Trump. I mean, look, and I, and I wrote about this for the Washington Monthly today, so you can see my fuller argument at yeah. the Washington Monthly, Monthly.com right now. I mean, Ronald Reagan was vocally pro-immigrant from the beginning of his campaign in 1979, which he launched literally three blocks from Trump Tower, uh, where he said that we shouldn't be fearful of, 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 our, of our neighbors. Uh, to his very last speech when he left the presidency, we talked about immigrants being you know, the lifeblood of, of America. Yeah. Um, uh, passed uh, an amnesty law in 1986. Uh, his successor, George H.W. Bush, passed another Immigration Act in 1990, which increased visas. Uh, but you started to see the anti-immigrant faction rise with Pat Buchanan in 1992. Uh, Bob Dole flirted with that in 1996, didn't get him very far. Uh, George W. Bush, also essentially pro-immigrant, tried to get a, a bipartisan bill passed to create a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented in 2006-2007. That gets tanked as, as anti-immigrant sentiment on the right, you know, hits a fever pitch. Uh, and, you know, Mitt Romney does the whole self-deportation thing in 2012, yeah. uh, which doesn't work. 
And then there's this brief moment where Republicans say, well, maybe we got to just suck it up in immigration because we, we got to win elections here. But that doesn't last. They tank another bipartisan bill in 2013. Uh, and then here comes Donald Trump in, 20, in 2015, 2016. They're, they're bringing crime, bringing drugs, they're rapists, et cetera. Uh, now, Donald Trump, as president, could not get immigration bills passed. No. Donald Trump instigated his own government shutdown. No president has ever deliberately shut down his own government for 35 days because he wanted border wall funding, which he did not get. He had to surrender after 35 days. Yeah. Uh, he, he was offered a deal by Chuck Schumer at the start of 2018. We'll give you $25 billion in border wall funding, but you got to keep Barack Obama's DACA program, which does this, this legalizes children yeah. of undocumented immigrants and give them public citizenship. Trump, this, this would have fulfilled his own campaign pledge. Yeah. And he did not take it. Because fixing problems is not what Donald Trump's Republican Party is all about. They, 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 they feed off of the grievance and the fear. And to solve immigration is to take away the one thing that unifies this Republican Party. Because after Donald Trump, it's not foreign policy. It's not Russia, Ukraine. It's not North Korea. It's not Social Security. Uh, it's not trade. The reason why they tacked, they want to tack on border security to Ukraine is Ukraine divides them. They yeah. don't want to have to face it. So they put trade tax on the outside. And when Biden called the bluff, they ran away. So yeah. The, the point is, like, Donald Trump is never going to solve the border because solving the border then exposes the fact that they have nothing else that they agree on at this point. He needs the border to be in chaos to maintain his grip on the party. Do you think uh, one last thing uh, uh, and then we, then we got to get out of here. Do you think that the border has separated itself from a baseline immigration argument? And that's to uh, explain why you've seen some, you know, like the, the the approval rates for deportations from not only independents, but also Democrats has gone up over the past six months. That that what is happening at the border now is separating itself on some level from a larger idea on whether or not you like immigrants in the country. Yeah, I think people are wrongly conflating the two and thinking the border is really bad right now. Therefore, most Americans hate all immigrants. Yeah. And we see time and time again, it's it's far more complicated than that. Most yeah. people know immigrants in their community. Uh, they hire immigrants. Uh, they know people who have been here for a long time are contributing to the American economy. Uh, so I don't think people really believe in like a mass deportation, which Donald Trump is currently talking about. What they don't like very reasonably, is huge numbers of people coming in in concentrated doses that municipalities can't process easily, can't find shelter right away, can't find work right away. Yeah. That puts genuine strain on budget resources. That's unlike what we've seen in the past 20 plus years. Uh, if you solve that front end problem, the fact that they can stay and contribute to the economy doesn't upset most people. Yeah. Uh, so that and trying to explain that is complicated, trying to find the policy Policies to deal with complicated, but quite frankly, I thought what they produced in the Senate was a pretty darn good job in trying to balance those uh, competing goals. Uh, and the Republican Party, which says I need days and days to read bills and process the detailed legislation, didn't even try to to do that because, again, solving problems is not what is keeping this party together. Yeah. 
you know, and and it, it makes me kind of wonder on the on the Republican side specifically, there seems to be a real there are no adults in the room anymore uh, uh, issue there. You know, there's there's nobody walking through that door that's going to calm things down uh, up to and including Mitch McConnell, who, who seemed especially impotent here in a way that he really hasn't in the past. You know, he is he has had even through the Trump administration, I think, more of a steady hand on the wheel than we saw over the last few days. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, uh, where can people find more of your great work? Well, thank you very much. At WashingtonMonthly.com. I do a uh, three times uh, a week newsletter there, plus a weekly column. Uh, and I'm on uh, X at Bill Share and threads at uh, Bill Share Media. Look at that. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. Take care. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show is edited by Brett Stewart. You want to thank Mr. Bill Share for coming on the show. You can do so. Letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. You can find, follow, and share video clips of our show. TikTok is Justin R. Young. Instagram is Justin R. Young. YouTube is politics, politics, politics. And you can find everything on Twitter at px3tweets for the show, Justin R. Young. For me, again, email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you want to find us live on Twitch, it is px3live. If you want to share this podcast, it is px3podcast.com. Hit us up with a one-time donation, paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. You can always get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news I miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show with the Titanic $10 tier. Sam, John, Niemeister, Edwin, and vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checkers, Sarah Jeannie, Spider Rogue, Matthew, Dr. G, Dustin, Brad, D. Laser, Nick, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, you dodging me, Montana, the Jen, hello, D, really, Andrew, Lisa, Fat Tony's PJs from New York, Devon the CFP, Gloria, Gray Zone, Robert, Jay, Neil, ye old pinball shop, John, DP for Bongo, Neil, his nerdiness, Charles, Audrey stole Adler's spot, Darren, Idris Arzlani, and Berkeley Steven, Nomadic Terran, Molly's Delightful Demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul. Folks, you want to join these illustrious ranks? You can do so. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I hope you all have a great weekend. I'm going to have a great weekend not traveling. Uh, oh, Super Bowl weekend. My official Super Bowl pick is... Take the Chiefs money line. Don't bet against Patrick Mahomes. Come on. This is easy. Taylor Swift in the box. Come on. It's a love story. Baby, just say yes. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying. 
Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics, but this is the only program that dares discuss. Oh! Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.